This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. Thank you, Tommy. And as you could tell, we're departing from our normal study through the book of Ephesians this morning, and we are in Luke chapter 2. Looking at, as Josh said earlier, a very familiar passage of dealing with the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I think it's good for us to consider Luke chapter 2, especially after having endured uh, a rather challenging year. In fact, when Josh was saying earlier that uh, another year has passed, I'm surprised none of you said amen, because I leaned over to Michael and I said, thank God, you know? Uh, it's been a year that really seems like no other in our day. Our church family has certainly, we have lost loved ones this year that have gone on to be with the Lord, and as well as that we have church family members that have, have lost loved ones to themselves as well. And around the world and close to home, we've been bombarded with what seems like one headline after the other this year. Maybe beginning in the very beginning of the, of the year with Prince Harry and Meghan quitting the royal family or Kobe Bryant's death, COVID-19, the impeachment of Donald Trump that seems like forever ago, the verdict of, Her of Harvey Weinstein, the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the so-called peaceful protest, and rumors of King Jong-un's death, explosions in Beirut, and who could forget the arrival of the murder hornets, wildfires out west, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the confirmation of Amy Comey Barrett, our own president's diagnosis and recovery of COVID-19, and the Hunter Biden scandal, and the ongoing saga of the never-ending 2020 election. And one that was particularly hard for me was the death of the rock and guitarist legend Eddie Van Halen at the age of 65, who died in October. Gives you a little bit of feedback into my life, I guess. But, and of course, the list goes on. But you know what's interesting is I remember a year ago, like this time last year, I remember people running around, especially Christians, talking about, you know, they would have these kind of like uh, little cliche sayings of saying, you know, I think God is going to help us to be able to see clear in the year 2020, making a pun on the optical vision. But you know, optimism of that quickly faded and turned once the events that I just described began to unfold in the year 2020. But I am hopeful that despite all of that, that clarity is not particularly lost. And perhaps the prayer of seeing things more clearly might be able to be answered by God after all. I mean, it should be clear to everyone who claims to be a Christian that what our world needs more than anything is a Savior that we just sang about. Christ our Savior. Every human being longs for a Savior of some type. We look for someone or something that can solve our problems, ease our pains, or even grant the most elusive goal of, at all, of all, and that is happiness. The problem in our world and, and problem with our world is, and I think unfortunately with many professing Christians as well, is that we're confused over sources of salvation. People look for saviors in their work, their financial success, Sports teams, relationships, coaches, players, maybe parents, a spouse even. 
government, religious leaders, entertainers, and maybe even looking for a savior and the number of followers that one may gain on social media. You see, by savior, I mean this, that people are looking for a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose or identity, happiness and peace and fulfillment and ultimately satisfaction. Emotional and psychological satisfaction is the God of our age. It is the God that people pursue. People worship the desire to be happy, the desire to be emotionally and psychologically satisfied. And the world around us offers many ideas and many forms of saviors and deliverers. And for some, the harsh realities of life are too much to bear. So we surround ourselves with alternate forms of escapism like porn, gaming, sports, alcohol, substance addiction, or binge watching. Even consumption and the constant trolling of social media. All around us is imitation and cheap alternates for fixing our problems, making us whole, providing peace and enjoyment of life. Those things, those cheap alternates and substitutes exist all around us. But unfortunately, what promises they make, they fail to deliver. And as Christians, we have to be careful not to put what seems like our hope of a a salvation into failed substitutes as well. No single politician, no president, and not a new pastor can deliver the kind of peace and contentment and satisfaction that we desire. Even while claiming to trust in Jesus, we can easily find ourselves constantly disappointed and even feeling frustrated through life because of having our hopes dashed because we put too much confidence in other human beings who are just as flawed as we are. Chasing imitation saviors who eventually fail alters even our own personalities and making us very cynical people towards everything and walking around life having a constant feeling of irritability because people will let you down. The year 2020 has clearly shown us that our world needs a savior and Christians need to make sure they're putting the right savior first. You know, when you read through Luke chapter 2, the first thing that catches our attention is that the arrival of this Savior, who the angels will announce as, you know, Christ our Lord, he comes, and the first lesson here really is that it's, it's a Savior who comes who defies our corrupt expectations. That's the first thing you notice in Luke chapter 2. I mean, when you arrive here, you find a, a setting And this is what's really interesting. I think something that we often miss about Luke's gospel is that Luke's gospel is really what we would call a polemic. It is written to counter, offer a counter narrative in the middle of an intensely idolatrous culture. I'll explain what I mean by that. When when Jesus was born, in the era that Jesus was born, he, he was born in the middle of a massive propaganda campaign that was all around the Roman Empire. 
If you notice in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, he mentions the Caesar, Caesar, you know, like I have pizza in my brain or something. I don't know. Uh, He mentions the census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus. And you say, well, that just, you know, and, and let me make a very clear point here. Luke is not just reciting for you historical fact. He's not just trying to regurgitate just historical information for you just to kind of give you a little leg up on some knowledge here. The mentioning of Caesar Augustus here is very deliberate for the narrative that's going to follow in verses 1 through 20. Because the one thing we do know about Caesar Augustus, who was born actually Octavian in 63 um, BC, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and he became known as Augustus, and he ruled in the Roman Empire. He ruled the Roman Empire during the era of Jesus' birth. But Augustus is credited for having brought in something, what, is, what will later be called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, an era of peace that, for the Romans anyway, was a so-called two-century, a 200-year reign of peace followed up by him and Marcus Aurelius and other Roman emperors. And so it was a 200-year period of Roman history that was about the, the empire's expansion, its wealth, its innovation, and its economic success. Augustus Caesar was so revered among the Romans that he was also granted titles by poets. He was also, and he was even given inscriptions or titles of divinity that were inscribed about him as well. One scholar referred to this as the development of the Roman imperial theology. But here's what I want you to understand. After the death of Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar was deified, treated as a god. And Augustus Caesar took on the title himself of son of God. And what's even interesting is that in the Roman world, when you heard the term good news, you did not think about Jesus. In the Roman world, when you heard the good news, you thought about Augustus Caesar. Because when people heard the term euangelion, gospel, in, their, in this context when Jesus was born, the gospel was good news about Augustus Caesar. Because he was the, well, he was the one viewed as having brought in an era of peace for the entire known world. In fact, what's really interesting is there's even an inscription in the city of Preen in modern-day Turkey referring to Caesar, and it says this, The birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. They understood gospel referring to Caesar Augustus. And that is how it was advertised in poems, inscriptions, in coins, in statutes, altars. Everywhere around them was a cultic propaganda that exalted Caesar Augustus as divine. That's all they knew. That was what was all around them. And in case you think I'm exaggerating, there's even a poet during this time frame who wrote a, listen to this, y'all ready? He wrote an epistle and titled it the Epistle to Augustus. And this is what he said, the Roman, po- Roman poet Horace. He says, Upon you, Augustus, however, while still among us, we already bestow upon you honors. We set up altars to swear by your name and confess that nothing like you will arise hereafter or has ever risen before now. This is the kind of imperial propaganda that pervaded the the territories of the Roman Empire. Augustus Caesar 
was even given the title Savior of the World. And so when you read Luke chapter 2, and you start reading in this text, and you start hearing announcements to shepherds by angels on a Judean hillside about the birth of a Savior, a Messiah, who is Lord in the magisterial line of David, accompanied by a host of angelic forces, we begin to realize there's more going on to this story than little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. In fact, in many ways, as one New Testament scholar will later write, that the angelic host showing up was actually a declaration of war. You see, the first lesson that we learn about the birth story of our Lord Jesus is that real salvation is not found in our conventional expectations. No one was looking to Judea for the solution of humanity's greatest problem. No one was looking towards Bethlehem. No one was looking towards an infant born in a stall to be the greatest threat to Roman imperialism and religious corruption in Jerusalem. Everything about the story speaks about how God operates in a way that is completely counter to sinful convention of human expectation. Joseph and Mary were simple people, common people. She seemed the least likely person in the world to carry the Son of God in her womb. And Augustus Caesar orders a census to be taken to, to collect taxes, and they go to Bethlehem, which, although it's a city where King David was born in, it was really not a very significant city at all in that time frame. It's kind of like Lukenbach, Texas, right? I mean, people knew about it because Waylon and Willie sang about it, but you wouldn't go there for any reason, right? Some of you who are younger are going, who? But... But, you know, in all this, Luke underscores the point that Jesus' birth, Mary laying him in a manger, putting him in a feed trough, it all emphasizes the fact that this is very counter to what anybody would expect. But, you know, one thing we need to address here is, is a common misunderstanding. I, it it's always gets me. I, you know, if anybody's playing in a nativity play or something and any of you is the grouchy innkeeper, I'm about to destroy your roles. I'm sorry. Because the idea of a grouchy innkeeper is nowhere in the Bible. Um, it was kind of funny. Marsh and I were in Publix the other day, and there was a guy bagging our groceries, older man, you know, and he was a little grumpy. And uh, Marsha walked out the store and said, Merry Christmas. He goes, rrr, rrr. I was like, you just got growled at, you know? I mean, uh, it just did not, you know, did not make him happy to hear the words Merry Christmas. So I'm thinking, well, there's the, well maybe there is the grumpy innkeeper there. I don't know, but... And most of the idea of some grumpy innkeeper in a local Bethlehem motel is really, it's, it's not what Scripture teaches here. And it's, for one thing, it was very common when people would travel into cities like this and they would stay, they would stay with family members and they would often stay in, in rooms. And what's really interesting is that the word we use here for inn, it's translated as inn, is actually the exact same word, same word translated later by Luke, or, or given to us later by Luke, for the word upper room, where Jesus actually ordered for the sharing of his Passover meal with his disciples. There is another word actually for inn, like in a hotel room that we would think of, and that word actually is a different word than used here. It's the one that was used in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where he ordered the innkeeper to take care of the man after he bound up his wounds. So really what you see here is actually, it's really like a, 
all the families coming together here for this census, and they come to Bethlehem, and, there's, and all the families crowded into a room, but there's really no one who's really willing to kind of give up their pallet for someone birthing a child. So they're like, you know, why don't you just go down to the first level with all the A's at, you know? Just seems a little easier for us. Nobody wanted to be inconvenienced by that. But, you know, when you look at this whole thing, look at the entire circumstances of Christ's birth, when you consider all of this, when and where he was born, Daryl Bach is right when he said that the contrast between the birth's commonness and the child's greatness could not be greater. The promised one of God enters creation among the creation. The profane decree of a census has put the child in the promised city of messianic origin. And God is quietly at work and the stable becomes the Messiah's first throne room. All of this in God-defying expectations. And when you see circumstances like this and Jesus' birth, you realize that what Luke is pointing out is the contrast of Jesus' arrival from the propaganda about Augustus Caesar. That in the success of a political empire, when no one was looking for a savior in that part of the world, God brought a savior. And the one that actually humanity desperately needed. Jesus had a stable, and the only fanfare that God decided to reveal all this to was a group of shepherds. Shepherds who were the lowest class of the social strata in Israelite society. They were the first ones to learn about this magisterial birth. They were despised by the religious elite. It was a menial task that they did. Shepherds were poorly educated, had minimal pay, and their job required such little skill that oftentimes children were employed to do it. And yet, why does God do this? Why does God do this to where he actually makes the very first ones that he informs about the arrival of the Savior to this group of shepherds? I think we get a hint of this from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 27 when he says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He's chosen the base things of the world, the things really that are insignificant, And to despise these things God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why, Paul? Why would God do something like this? Verse 29, so no man can boast before God. By his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, quoting from Jeremiah 9, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does God do this? Paul makes it very simple. Listen, the story of redemption is God's story. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not ours to create. It was not ours to invent. The story of redemption is God's. It belongs to him, written by him, executed by him, and he alone shall get the glory. Paul knows that we are so bound up in sin and idolatry that if we could have figured out Christ was the Savior, we would have robbed God of his glory, taken credit for discovering it ourselves. But as the angels declare, it is to the glory of God, not to us. And so when the angel arrived, all of a sudden, you know, we we talk about the shepherds here. And the shepherds were, you know, I mean, really, when you think about the shepherds, their story is our story. 
If you're in Christ, we share the same story with them. In the middle of just living life, chasing idols and doing our jobs and seeking our delights and seeming to just mind our own business, God brought the good news about Jesus to us. I guarantee you that night, the shepherds were not really looking for an angel to show up. It was not on the forecast. The shepherds, whom we know nothing about, by the way, were experiencing just a typical night. They were rotating their shifts. They were protecting herds. They were out that night. But their, li- their lives absolutely changed forever when the brilliance of glorious light erupted around them. And when they saw the angel, one of the things that caught my attention is when they saw the angel, the first thing they did not say was, oh, how beautiful. Oh, how cute. It wasn't that they were shocked that, you know, I really thought this would look more like a precious moments figurine, but it just didn't really come out like that. Instead, our Bibles tell us that when the angels showed up, the shepherds were terribly frightened, the New American Standard says, or the CSB says terrified, or the King James, they were sore afraid, or the ESV says they were filled with great fear. Here's what's interesting. This is the time where I actually prefer we would have just a literal translation of the Greek because it literally says that they were frightened with great fear. He, but the word he uses, I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek here. The word he uses here to describe this kind of fear is the word mega. <laughs> You literally could translate this and say the shepherds were frightened with mega fear. We all know what that one is. This was fear on steroids. The shepherds panicked because they saw the blinding brilliance of God's holy light and they knew something. That kind of light meant sudden death. The angel is the one who is in the presence of God's glory, the kind of glory of the Lord that passed before Moses in Exodus 33 and 34, where God shielded Moses' face to keep Moses from being basically vaporized by his blinding luminosity. The kind of glory that descended upon the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 that blinded the priests and they had to run out because of it. The kind of glory that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1 that he fell in a comatose state where he couldn't even lift his head to see this brilliance of the glory of God. The kind of glory that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 that he suddenly feared for his own life and existence because of seeing the glory of God. The kind of glory that Peter, James, and John saw in Matthew 17 or Luke 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration where when Peter, James, and John saw this and they heard the voice of God speaking and the glory around them, they fell to their faces terribly frightened in the kind of glory that John the Apostle saw in Revelation chapter 1 when the the angel who was covered with the glory of God came before him and spoke and John says, I fell at his feet as a dead man. That's why they were fearful. And whether it was Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, or the three apostles, when they saw the blinding, glory, blinding brilliance of God's glory, they were all terrified. Why? Because immediately they were exposed with the feeling of their own unworthiness to be in that presence. But in the middle of all that fear, in the middle of that conviction of fear, of knowing they shouldn't be there other than they may face the death penalty for being there, in the middle of all of that, we hear these words of grace, do not be afraid. In fact, I love it because uh, the word mega is used again. The angel literally says this to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of mega joy. 
You got mega, you got mega fear? I got mega news. How about that? Mega joy. Unworthy sinners in the presence of God were not destroyed. Why? Because of good news that was announced. But guess what? This good news, when they heard that word, this time it wasn't about Caesar Augustus. This was about a different king. This was about a different savior. And this is ultimately about a savior that no one else in the world was really looking for. It's a reminder to us all that none of us could stand before the glory of God and the beauty of his holiness without the judgment of eternal death and hell. It reminds us that every one of us in Romans 3.23 have fallen short of the glory of God and the only way that we can be right with God is being justified as a gift by his grace through redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Our only hope to experience the joy of God's presence is his glory, in his glory is experiencing redemption from this child that he will bring about. Not just through his birth, but through his death. When the glory of the Lord Jesus appears at his second coming, everyone who is not covered by the atoning blood of Jesus' death will be overcome with the horror of mega fear at his appearing. But the only way that we can say it is well with our soul when the sky is rolled back like a scroll and the trumpet sounds is if by faith we have believed the good news of mega joy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. The angel announces what is good news for all people. It's kind of the, the all people is like what Simeon will say to Mary later in Luke 2.32 that Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And to these humble, poorly educated, socially despised shepherds came the good news in 2.11, in chapter 2, verse 11, that, the, that into the world was born a Savior, but it wasn't Caesar. And to the most unsuspecting audience, shepherds, came the news of the most unexpected source of salvation, a newborn child lying in a feed trough. But you notice, however, the angel announces about this child is that this child is born in the city of David. He's a savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice how the angel emphasizes the child's titles and his royalty. He is Christ, the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is God's anointed king of Psalm chapter 2, of Psalm chapter 110. He's the Davidic ruler of, Psalm, of 2 Samuel chapter 7. He's the righteous branch we just read about in Jeremiah 33 and spoken about in Jeremiah 23 as well. He is Christ the Lord. He is the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, revealed in the flesh, the fullness of God and helpless babe, concealed, his glory concealed in the flesh of a child. This is the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. And see, what I want you to see, here's what I want you to understand. When you read Luke chapter 2, you have to understand how audacious and politically provocative this chapter is. It's audacious because it was announced in the time of Augustus Caesar. These titles and this announcement was ultimately a declaration of war, which is often, we misunderstand that because we, we read chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, and we, we tend to misunderstand what the angels are doing and they're praising and what they're saying. Number one, we kind of envision this multitude of angels singing like some kind of big Gaither choir or something, you know? And that's not what it is. 
But secondly, some translations are not very good at translating their song. In fact, I want to kind of look at that second part first real quick. Because when we look at this, this second part, what the angels are saying is not some kind of generic peace. They're not pronouncing just God's general goodwill, like somehow the Lord is, you know, giving us hope for, you know, international arms agreement or something, you know, by laying down nuclear weapons or something. This is not the kind of peace that God is talking about, nor the angels are singing about. The peace here that's being described here, I think is actually best translated by the New International Version, which says, when, the, when they said in chapter, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. In other words, those who experience peace are the ones who have received his Savior, received him by faith. When you receive him by faith upon you, God's favor rests and you experience peace. This is not some kind of general soupy, mushy, hallmark-watching-movie-channel kind of peace we're talking about here, okay? Peace of God is not just generic. It's those who receive the salvation of God of his Son. And so what the angels are doing is explaining that the real need for peace is between God and sinners. <laughs> Our real problem is moral rebellion against God and our real problem is facing the fierceness of his wrath, which is justice due because of our sins. And the only way to experience peace is fellowship with God, and that's only possible through faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned, though, we need to think about this multitude of angels. This multitude of angels that begins to sing. This is not, this is not some choir that we, we tend to think about in, in those kinds of terms. Instead, when, when Luke tells us that an entire host of angels appeared, we have to understand the term host and the way it's used elsewhere in the Bible. That typically when the word host was used in the Bible, it referred to an army. When God, when, when the Lord is described in the Bible as the Lord Sabaoth, as the Lord of hosts, he is the Lord of armies. The word that Luke uses here is the same word used today in the country of Israel to describe its army. It was a militaristic term. And so God is literally the Lord of armies. And if you put that in the context of Caesar Augustus in the background, you'll understand that the announcement being made here is not some sweet Christmas carol. It's a declaration of war. And I think the New Testament scholar, William Varner, is exactly on point when he says this. As contradictory as it may seem to us as Christmas being a time of peace, the advent included the assembling of the heavenly host for a war, one that would be fought in the spiritual fields, not earthly ones. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8, and Satan reciprocated with his own spiritual assaults on Jesus. This is why there was such a surge of demonic activity during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan's repeated attempts to destroy Jesus, whether it was Herod after he was born or through the temptations in the wilderness or inspiring evil plots by the religious leaders that he, because they knew that upon this, the arrival, the birth and the arrival of this child in Bethlehem, it now faced the beginning of the end of the reign of darkness that Satan had, had control of for millennia. The birth of Jesus in reality was not so silent of a night. It was the beginning of a spiritual conflict that would be the beginning of the end of the reign of Satan's triumph of darkness. 
And so in this audacious and daring announcement, these angels declare that Caesar Augustus is not the savior, that Caesar Augustus is not the son of God. Instead, these angels announce exactly what would be announced about Christians later in Acts chapter 17, when they were accused of saying they're, they're running around in Acts 17, 7, saying that they're, they're running around acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king and his name is Jesus. And that what the early Christians were accused of, of saying there is another king besides Caesar and his name is Jesus, is exactly what the angels were announcing on that night on that Judean hillside. Augustus Caesar is exposed as a fraud. He's exposed as an imitation savior, an illegitimate savior. And despite all the circumstances of humility and stable and shepherds, the reality is, despite all the appearances from the outside, the reality is Jesus was the true king. His arrival was so unconventional. It so defied sinful human expectation that later on, Jesus actually makes the warning. He says in Matthew 24, 4, be aware for false Christ, false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders and so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And then the apostle John would warn later as well in 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared for we know this is the last hour. You see, Satan constantly places before us hollow and cheap substitutes for who Jesus really is. Everyone wants a savior. Everyone wants a deliverer. Everyone wants a rescuer. But the problem is we look to fallen and frail creatures for only what God alone can provide through his son, the Lord Jesus. We look for saviors maybe in our work. We might even look for, towards our spouse in some sense as a savior. Sometimes we look to technology as saviors, sometimes our abilities, sometimes athletics, sometimes friends, and sometimes leaders. We expect fulfillment and peace from things like sexual fulfillment or sexual identity, or maybe we even mask our discontents, the discontents of our life through just emerging, through emerging, um, immersing ourselves into an endless buffet of entertainment choices and games and streaming content. And all the while, we realize we can't quiet the discontent of our soul. There's no real peace. We look for saviors in the obvious imitations that the, that the evil one places before us. And while the whole time, God is pointing us towards a genuine source of salvation that is not so obvious, but instead arrived in complete obscurity. God's ways are not our ways. God's sources of happiness and contentment and truth and peace, it's not what the world parades in front of us. You know, with that in mind, I just want to kind of end by focusing on something else here. In verses 15 through 20, Luke chapter 2, in verses 15 through 20, I, I want you to see something here that I think, you know, when the Bible, anytime that the Bible wants to make a point about something, it repeats it. And so here we see an emphasis being made towards something by the repetition of something. So I just want to read this and let me, and you can hear through the inflection of my voice where the emphasis is. In Luke chapter 2, verse 15, he says, When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began to say to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem 
then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he was lying in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things and pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as has been told them. You hear the emphasis there? Everything here was about the fact that the only way that they knew about this child was because it was made known to them. It was told to them. You know, one of the joys that I get to experience just like that of the shepherds, and one of the joys that you get to experience just like the shepherds is that the good news was told to us. I think one thing we do, we take, we take our Bibles for granted. God was under no obligation for you to know about the birth of his son. None of us deserve it. We just taught in, Sunday, in the Sunday school hour, we were teaching about the, the, the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus before Peter, James, and John. And trying to explain to our students in there and say, you know, the one thing is when you look at our culture, our culture wants to be able to kind of, you know, if we were given a, if we were given a blank on the board that God is like, and then you put a blank there, you know, it's Satan's temptation for us to be able to fill in the blank of whatever we think God is like. But God has not left himself to be defined by sinful human imaginations. God has spoken, and God has spoken clearly. And what God wants to know, what wants us to know about him is clearly revealed to us in his word. And just as God poured out his grace to the shepherds in revealing his salvation that night, and so God pours out his grace to us and the rest of the world by, guess what, giving us the announcement of this good news as well. We know the good news. And it ain't about Caesar. It's about Jesus. It's about salvation. It's about that cross. It's about our only hope. It's about the destruction and the failures and the cheap, hollow imitations of all other would-be saviors, and that at the end of all history, only one will be left standing, and we won't be standing because we will be on our faces as well. What's exciting about the shepherds is to see what they did in Luke chapter 2, verse 20. You know, they were really the first good newsers. They went out telling everybody what they'd have been told. Not just what they'd been told, but what they'd seen and what they'd heard. These insignificant shepherds, that know, we don't even know their names. We know one thing. They were the first ones that the announcement was made to, and they were the first ones also to start spreading the news about it. They were the first evangelists. Without the good news of God speaking the good news of G, about Jesus, we wouldn't be here this morning, and there certainly wouldn't be any Christmas. Listen, our failure to understand the gospel message is not because God has failed to speak, clearly. Instead, it's, it reveals to us a much deeper problem. As one British theologian said, the problem is not that God's communication is ineffective, it's that human beings are so rebelliously sinful that we are, not, that we are determined not to listen to it. 
This is a critical point. We must understand that Satan is delighted to keep our attention and pursuits toward counterfeit saviors. And when talking about the gospel message, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, that even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God is not hard of speaking. We are hard of hearing. This Christmas, we should do exactly what Mary did at the end of this section in chapter 2, verse 19. When Mary heard everything that the shepherds said about the child, Luke tells us that she treasured these things and she pondered them. She pondered them in her heart. Mary was pondering. She was engaged. She, She engaged her mind and her heart towards considering all the things that were happening and all the things that were were being reported to her about her son. Let let, let me just say this. I I know that in our age, y'all listen to me for a second, okay? I know that in our age, that in our age of media and connectivity, you know, it's a serious challenge asking anybody to reflect on anything. You hear me? Maggie Jackson in her book, Distracted, she said, today our virtual split screen and nomadic era is eroding opportunities for deep focus, awareness, and reflection. And I give a hearty amen. The truth is you can only live life for so long going from one experience to another or one social media site to another or one podcast to another or one website to another. You can't build your life off and, and, and build even kind of a, a sense of understanding the things that are most significant in life through viral videos and memes. But like Mary, God intends us to pause, to rest, and to reflect on the good news that was announced. Something that unfortunately we have so busied our lives, so crowded our lives to the point where we have failed to even be able to really ponder the good news. When you look over the year 2020 and the world around you, and maybe even your own life, you'll find a world that is in desperate need for a Savior. And the Savior that Caesar Augustus could never be, the kind of Savior that other people, technology, courts, sexuality, money, power, and success could never be. And they could never provide But may God give us the grace to treasure and ponder the gospel message so we can clearly be able to see how idols are false imitations of saviors. And God can give us a clear vision. Maybe being able to see clearly after all in the year 2020, a clear vision that Christ alone is the legitimate savior. And that when he arrived, it was a declaration of war against the principalities and the powers of the air. And that we who belong to Christ have escaped the clutches of the kingdom of darkness that Satan had had full reign over. And now, when we live in hope of his reappearing, because when he comes again, we will be with the Lord forever. And we will be able to behold his glory without fear of death. That's good news. And so, Father, this morning, when we think about the gospel... It is good news, Lord, that we can have fellowship and a relationship with you 
despite the fact, Lord, we are sinners, but Lord, that our sins are covered through faith in the atoning work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for maybe we're, even for us who name the name of Christ, Father, maybe we've tried to seek significance and fulfillment and all the cheap imitations that Satan ushers before us. But Father, help, I pray this morning, for us to be like Mary and ponder the significance of this angelic announcement, the birth of this son. So Lord, we can get rid of the distracting substitutes in our life and focus our attention on the true Savior, the real King, Jesus the Christ. Father, help us. You have blessed us with the knowledge of the good news. Help us, Lord, not to waste that knowledge. God, help us to be like the shepherds and to go out and proclaim this good news. That in a world, Lord, that is gripped with darkness, Lord, help us to speak clearly of the glory of the Lord and the light that you have shown in your Son. Father, help us to actually be able to reflect on these things, to weigh these things out. And Lord, may it lead us to singing songs of praise for the marvelous work of grace that you have done. Lord, let not the advent escape. It's, uh, let us not undermine or escape its significance. But Father, help us to contemplate it. And Lord, may it lead us to true worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.